The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verses 14 through 22 is where we'll be today. Um, I feel a little bit like either a knight, probably more like an ogre. <laughs> Maybe I'm Ogle the Ogre coming out of the castle. Um, but this morning we've got to look at God's Word. We need God's Word, don't we? We need this book. This is the very Word of our God. Given to us, the greatest, outside of Jesus, the greatest gift that we could ever receive is the very Word of God. You know, how many times have you, or maybe, for me, I'll speak from personal experience, get a note from my wife or get a card from her and treasure that. The nightstand by my bed, you open that drawer there and it's filled with, through our dating and through the years, cards and letters from my wife um, written personally to me. I treasure those. We need to see this book as written personally from the heart of our God to us. We're not the main characters in this story. That's not what I'm saying. This is about God. But this is written to, to us. Let's treasure that together. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? This morning's message is entitled... Leaving the Lord's table to dine with the devil. Leaving the Lord's table to dine with the devil. For the first time, Paul, in this letter, now, since he's been dealing with idolatry, their insistence on their rights to be able to eat in these pagan temples, saying, what's the harm in this? These idols that, these, that are worshipped in these temples are not really gods. There's one God. So what, it, what does it hurt if we go and eat some of the meat that's prepared in these temples? Well, for the first time in Paul's rebuttal against this, he gives a flat-out prohibition against this. 
Do not do this, he says. Flee from idolatry. He calls it idolatry there. He equates it with that. Up until now, he's simply told them, consider the weaker brother if you eat this meat. You might cause someone to stumble. He he warns them about falling into sin personally. But now he says to them, do not do it. Flee from idolatry. They saw nothing wrong with eating in these pagan temples. Many of them were coming to the Lord's house or the Lord's gathering uh, on Sunday, and they would come and they would participate in the Lord's Supper. And they would take the bread and they would take the cup and they would participate in this, and they were treating it as if it were just an immunization, if you will. And then once they had this immunization, then they could go out into the world and live however they wanted to live, as if this inoculated them to and against sin. The thing is, today is not different for a lot of people. A lot of people come to churches just like this one. Maybe some of you are here today with this mindset. You come to church, and maybe we're not having the Lord's Supper today, but you come to church thinking that by being here, you will have washed away all the sin from your previous week. That just by coming, you've washed it away as if it's, you, you treat corporate gathered worship as some spiritual morning after pill. It's supposed to take care of what you've worked hard to birth in your life all week long. Some people treat corporate worship in the Christian church as their booster shot, their immunization. That if, if they can just come to church, it, it will give them a boost in their immune system against sin so that they can go out and they can live in and among as much sin as they possibly want to in their lives. And it won't stick to them. Now, I would say to you that this is not what the approach that we should take when we gather together. This is what Paul is fighting against. I would ask you a question today. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. The first question I'm going to ask you is, what are we saying in our worship? What are we saying in our worship? What is this all about? Is this just formality? Is this gathered time just formality? Is this the equivalent of traffic court? That when we get caught in our lives, we come here so that maybe the fine will be reduced and there won't be points put on our record. Is that all this is? Or is this gathering more? Is there something deeper here? Is it more authentic? Nowhere is the message of our worship seen more clearly or heard more loudly than when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. There, clearly, visibly, it's not just the preacher on a stage preaching the message, but it's those who participate preaching the message also. It's in that moment that they are gathering around the Lord's table. We gather around the Lord's table together proclaiming that He is enough. That He is all we need. Despite all of the messages that come from the world all week long, we gather together and we say, I still need His body. I still need His blood. This is my only hope. Nowhere is that worship seen more clearly than in the Lord's Supper, and that's what He's going to deal with here. I want you to notice, and maybe you paid attention as I was reading the text, how many times the word participation or its derivative was used in just these few verses. I count at least four times here in this passage. Possibly five if you count the word partake. There's this 
significance here to him using this word. The word means, it's, it's the word koinonia, which many of you have heard, and you know that it means fellowship. It means togetherness. It means fellowship. It's this personal participation. When we come together to worship God, He is here. It's not just that we are here and He's off some distant place and we're hoping that He hears from as far away as He is, but He's here in our midst. That's what the Bible talks about. When we gather, He's with us. There is real fellowship, not just with one another. There is this horizontal aspect of our worship, but there is very much a vertical aspect as well where we are participating, we are fellowshipping with God Himself when we come to this place. This is not just routine or rote. Listen to what He says. Verse 16, He says to them, The cup of blessing that we bless... The reason it's called the cup of blessing is because this would have been the third cup in the Passover meal. And this was the particular cup where it it was the thanksgiving cup. It was the cup of blessing. It was where it summed up all that they would say, God, you are enough in this cup. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, there's that word, in the blood of Christ? Here's what we're saying in our worship. When we drink the cup of the Lord's Supper, it is not to be done simply as ritual. Nor is it to be understood that the contents of the cup are actually the blood of Christ. This is what some believe. They believe in something called transubstantiation or consubstantiation where where the elements actually either become or the blood and bodies right there. causes you to treat the elements with with the utmost respect. And we don't believe that the juice in the cup or the bread that we place in our mouths literally becomes the body and the blood of Christ. Some do, but that's not what we're saying. When he says here, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Instead, what he's saying is that when we take the Lord's Supper together, when we drink the cup, we are making a personal statement about our participation in the blood of Christ. That we're coming and saying, this is not just something out there. This is something that I know. By the grace of God that I know. That we personally are trusting in the forgiveness that's provided by Jesus' blood. The the cup represents His death. And so when we come and we worship through the cup, we look back and to when Jesus took that cup and he looked at his disciples and he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We understand this. When we come together and we take the cup, we are recognizing that Christ died for us. When you take the cup and you raise it to your lips, you are recognizing in that moment, Christ died for me. This is His blood, and I am participating in this. And thank God I am participating in this. You are recognizing that He became sin for you. He who knew no sin became sin for you. The one who was worshipped in heaven by countless numbers of created angels who had never never had to endure anything that we endure here, wouldn't have had to, but voluntarily stepped up and came. He became sin for us. 
that He took our punishment and absorbed the wrath of God for us. That it was there on that cross when He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's in that moment that He feels the weight of the wrath of God that was meant for you and for me. It was not meant for Him. Because He was without sin, but He voluntarily, after living a perfectly righteous life, went to the cross and took our place. So when we come together and we take the cup from the table and we lift it to our lips, we are saying, Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for taking my punishment. Thank you for calling me to yourself. His death bought me off the slave market of sin. That's what our worship says. He goes on in verse 16 and he says, The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? This, if, if, his, if his blood represents his death, then his body represents his life for us. Think of all the ways that his life makes you free. Do you realize that when Jesus came, he didn't have to come, but Philippians 2 tells us that he humbled himself. Listen to Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7 says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is more than simply walking to a table and lifting bread to our mouths and chewing and returning to our seats. This is us saying, He left heaven for me. Not only did He leave heaven for me, but He fought temptation. Think of that. The Son of God, the one who created all that we know, fought temptation. Subjected himself to that. Matthew 4 tells us of that. I won't read you the whole section, but the Satan, Satan comes to him after he's been in the wilderness, in the desert, 40 days without food, in the desert. Satan comes to him and tempts him three separate times. On the last temptation, verses 8 through 10, he says, it says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. See, because in that moment, you and I, if we had been in the wilderness, in the desert for 40 days, sustained there, by God. I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure that in, in my flesh, I would have said, be gone, Satan. But Jesus never says yes to the temptation. He battles temptation and wins. He is without sin. The Bible says not only that, but he suffered Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 through 18 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself was, has suffered and when tempted, he is able to help those who are also being tempted. When we come to the Lord's table, we come... Celebrating the death that he died for us, but also the life. That he humbled himself. That he came as a man. That he was tempted like we are, yet he won the battle of temptation and never sinned. 
His life, the very condescension of the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who was adored by angels, the very condescension that he would leave and come to us in our time of need. His life brings us freedom. Our worship says, because Jesus lived such a life, I've been made righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. See, his righteous life has been credited to us. And so when we come in this place and we sing songs, if, if we didn't have that righteousness, there would be this constant state of still having to perform because death would have would have nullified us and brought us to a morally neutral state. We would have been forgiven, but as soon as it was turned back over to us, we would have messed it up again. But because of His righteous life, His righteousness being credited to us, and our sinfulness being now taken from us and put on Him, we don't come in here having to perform. We don't come in here having to bring sacrifices again because we've messed it up since He was sacrificed for us. We come knowing that it was a once-for-all sacrifice, that His righteousness has been given to me. So I don't perform. He's pleased in me because I'm in Christ. That's what our worship says. Verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. A part of what was going on in Corinth was great division. They were arguing with one another. They were lining up behind their favorite teachers, and they were saying things like, well, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos. Well, I follow Christ. And there was, they were divided at every turn. They were trying to do things like beat each other to the Lord's Supper. Can you imagine that? Hey, we're going to have Lord's Supper next week. And you all running to get here so that you can hog all the elements and, and eat it all up before somebody else gets in here and somebody walks through the door and says, I thought we were having Lord's Supper. Oh, we did, you know, but it's gone, you know. I mean, that's, what, that's literally what was going on. And it, and it wasn't just little pieces of bread and grape juice, but many of them were coming together because it was a feast and it was real wine and they were coming together and they were getting drunk. At the Lord's Supper. This is a messed up place. I mean, if, if you're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper at church, you got issues, right? Paul points out to them that they have not been called to isolation. They've not been called to live private, private Christianity. He says, the gospel makes us one. When we come together, there's one, one bread. So we take of that one bread. So if we all take of that one bread, aren't we one body? Aren't we one? We're brought together in Christ. When we come, when, when we come to the table, we come together. We come as the redeemed community. We come as one body. We not only have personal koinonia, fellowship with God, but we also have personal fellowship with one another. We come together. I mean, look around the room. I mean, literally, look around the room. Nobody wants to do that because it's like, that's awkward, Pastor. Don't do that. If you look around the room, you will see in this room people that you would not find yourself hanging out with any other place outside of the gospel, right? If not for the blood of Jesus, his sacrifice, the gospel calling us to himself, you and I, many of us, wouldn't hang out. 
right? But the gospel brings us together. The gospel makes us one. We come together and now we are no longer individuals who can simply come in these doors, find a seat, and then sneak back out. But instead, we're called to be a family. We're called to be a faith family of God where we love one another, where we care for one another, where we encourage one another, where we rebuke one another from time to time, where we look for ways to stir up gifts of love and good deeds among one another, where we push one another to let our light so shine before men that they would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. That's what we're called to. We come to to the table as one. So what are we saying in our worship? Let me just sum it up for you. When authentic, we are saying to God and to one another and to a watching world that Christ is all we need. That's why we sing the songs we sing. That's why we make precedent, very important, the, the, the Word of God. While we walk through books of the Bible, verse by verse, and we look at them because We want to say to to the watching world, to you, to me, that you don't need to hear me be funny. You don't need to hear me build sets and come across a drawbridge and and come up with sermon titles like, you know, storming the the gates of prosperity or, you know, getting across the the mode of whatever. You know, you don't need to hear me say that kind of stuff. What you need is for me to say, this is the very word of God and Christ is enough. Right? What we say in our worship is that Christ is all we need. He has taken our punishment. He has paid our ransom. He has provided our salvation. He is our life in this world and the next. He has adopted us and brought us into a wonderful family. He is our protector and our provider. What He gives is what we need. He satisfies every longing of our hearts. He is enough. That's what we're saying in our worship. Second question I'll ask you today is this. It gets shorter from here, I promise. Second question is, what's at the heart of idolatry? What's at the heart of idolatry? Verses 19 through the first part of 20, he says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And they were arguing that eating in these pagan temples was okay because these weren't real gods. What is it hurting, they would say. And they were right to a degree, but there was a spiritual reality that they were blind to. By the way, I read a tweet this morning that because sin blinds, God has given us the church so that we might be told that we're blind to it. Now, I messed up that tweet, but it was something like that. The church is given to us as a gift of God so that we might see. Because you and I will go into directions that we don't need to go into and think we're heading in the right direction. So we've been given brothers and sisters who will call us back and say, no, 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 you're about to go off a cliff. They were arguing, though, we're okay This is fine, but what they didn't understand was there was a spiritual reality that they were blind to. Paul says there in this passage, what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons. Now, this is not just Paul spouting off opinion. This is not just him saying, hey, that stuff's evil, that's demons. He's pulling it straight out of the Old Testament. In fact, the Israelites 
Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 15 through 18. But Jeshurun, which is a, a name for Israel. Israel grew fat. He kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. And then you forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy. That'll come back again. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Paul says here, Look, remember, remember just prior to this, in the same chapter in 1 Corinthians, he says, consider the Israelites. Remember their failings? Again, he goes back to them. Remember this? They sacrificed to demons without even being aware that they were sacrificing to demons. Psalm 106 says, again, talking about the Israelites, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. Very dark, dark, dark blemish on their record. They get lured away into idolatry, and before they know it, they're sacrificing their very children to demons. Just because the idols that were being worshipped in those pagan temples there in Corinth were not in and of themselves gods, it didn't mean that supernatural powers could not be attributed to them. There was definitely supernatural demonic power there. In the same way, idolatry today can be attributed to supernatural demonic power. What is idolatry? Let me give you a definition of idolatry, just simply this. Idolatry is trusting in something other than the Lord or His provision to satisfy you. It's looking for your satisfaction in something other than God. Satan can't stand to have people trust in God, can he? Therefore, he will do all that he can to get you to seek satisfaction in other things. He will put before you all kinds of things. He will put before you images and money and comfort and sex and relationships and food and promises of popularity and pleasure. And he will put those things before you and he will say, look, your, your father is obviously not providing for you if you are his son. You need to strike out and seek pleasure in these. You're not being satisfied in what he's given. Look, this is so much better. And this is idolatry. Whatever it takes to get you to say, Jesus is not enough, I also need Blank. So at the heart of idolatry is satanic, demonic influence. Last question I'll ask you today then is this. How could we possibly say both? If our worship says Jesus is enough, but idolatry says God's not enough. I also need this. Can we possibly say those two things 
together simultaneously and mean them? No. It's impossible. That's what he says here. He says to them in this passage, you can't do this. If our worship says Jesus is all I need, but our lives say he's really not, I would ask you, then which is really true? If your words on a Sunday morning for an hour and a half say Jesus is enough, but your life the rest of the week says no, he's not, which is really true? How can we be participants with both? This would be like me saying, come up here every week, talk to you, talk to you about my wife, talk to you about how much I love my wife, I'm in love with my wife, God's given me such a wonderful wife, just over and over to where you get sick of it, and you're like, shut up about your wife already. But I'm talking about my wife, talking about how much I love her, and then all of a sudden you find out that I've got a secret mistress on the side. And she's not just a secret mistress, but I'm married to her too. We're married at the same time. Can, I, can those two things exist? No. I cannot say that I truly love my wife if I'm going to have another wife over here. Likewise, we cannot say, I love Jesus, He is all I need, and then go out of here and dine with the devil. The solidarity of the koinonia with Christ and with one another excludes us from any other similar koinonia. There are some things we just cannot do because of the fellowship that we have with God. It excludes us from it. This is what leads Paul to say, I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and of the table of demons. He's saying you can't leave the Lord's table and go dine with the devil. You can't do it. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And then this last line here in our passage today in verse 22, these last two sentences, these last two questions, I mean, they, they just intrigued me. They just... It just bothered me all week. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? What is it that Paul's saying to them? He seems to be out of the blue. You, you can't do this. And then he just turns and he says, Can we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Should we be doing this? Are we stronger than He is? See, if I was writing this, I would say, you can't do this. You can't leave the Lord's table and go dine with the demons because when the watching world sees you, they don't get the truth. It, just, it, looks, it looks bad to them. It's not a true testimony. That's what I would say. Paul doesn't go there. 
Instead, he's not worried at this point about what the watching world sees. Now, he is because he's worried about the glory of God among the nations. But in this moment, he's saying, look, if you can continue to do this, if you can repeatedly do this, if you can come in, treat the Lord's Supper as if it's nothing more than an inoculation, a booster shot, a morning after pill, all of those things, and then and then go out and dine with the devil and enter into all sorts of sin after that and act like it's no big deal, then you've got to question, are you really one of his? He's saying to them, can you, are you, you're provoking the Lord with jealousy because God is jealous and he will not let his glory be given to anyone else. You're You're taking what should be your devotion, your affection, the glory given from you to God, and you're giving it to other things. That says something about you, that He's not what you think He is to you. And you think that you can just provoke Him. In fact, listen to what Gordon Fee says about this in his commentary. He wrote, Those who would put God to the test by insisting on their right to what Paul insists is idolatry, are in effect taking God on, challenging Him by their actions, daring Him to act. Secure in their own foolhardiness, they think of themselves as so strong that they can challenge Christ Himself. Are you so bold? Are you so confident that you would sit here today and treat worship as if it is insignificant and unimportant? You come so that you can get a little benefit out of it, but then go out and live with no difference in your life. I'm not talking about depending on you and your own strength. This is not a religious uh, religion that's based on works. Is there any reality of Christ in your life? If so, you can't do that. Deuteronomy, the, the rest of that Deuteronomy passage that I read to you earlier in 32 says, then he will say... Where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge. Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. I would ask you today, church, do you want to hear that from God one day? On that day? Where are the gods that you took refuge in? Where are the gods that you took pleasure in, that you sacrificed your life to? Let them rise up and protect you. I don't want to hear that. Isaiah 65, But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of of, of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called you, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Church, here's what I'm saying to you today. I'm saying to you what Paul says. Therefore, my beloved, in verse 14, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. If you're here today, Paul says to them, because he knows there are those there in the church at Corinth that are true believers. That's why he calls them my beloved. Flee from it. Listen to the Spirit in your life. 
Flee from idolatry. I'm saying to you today, church, those of you who are genuine, blood-bought believers, flee from idolatry. Don't float through life as if this life doesn't really matter. You've been called now that since you have been saved to war against sin, to run that race, to fight against it, not to fight for your salvation, but because you are saved to fight from it. So flee from idolatry. But I would also say to another group that's here, those of you who are in the room and you are not believers, you're not, you're not genuine Christians, and I'm not talking to anybody with a name. I don't know. I can't see your heart. But if you're here today and you have never received the gospel of Jesus Christ, you've come to church a lot, you may have walked an aisle, maybe you got wet in a pool, maybe you've taught Sunday school, maybe you've sang in a choir, maybe you've been a deacon, maybe you've ran the sound system, maybe you've greeted people, parked parking, cars in the parking lot, worked in the kitchen, worked in the nursery, all those sort of things. None of that. None of that, none of that will save you. If you are here today and you are lost, turn to Christ. Become a participant in the cup and in the bread. Become a participant in the body. Flee from idolatry. Church, don't leave the Lord's table today to go down with the devil. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. God, we thank you that we don't perform for you, that we don't have to keep ourselves right and clean. God, we thank you that your righteousness has been given to all those who by faith trusted in you. God, today we thank you that the penalty has been paid by Jesus for all who would trust in him, turning from their sin and believing that he is their only hope. God, I pray that in this room today, Lord, that you would move in the hearts of those who are not yet believers, that you would call them to yourself. God, that is your work and yours alone. No man can come to the Father unless you draw him. God, draw sinners to yourself today. God, for the church that's seated in this room today, God, would you move on us to live lives of discipline, lives of holiness, because you are holy, and we want to be like our Father in practice. We are that in reality because we're made that in Christ, Lord, we know that. But God, we want to labor to be that in practice. Make us more holy. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ethan's going to play and lead us to reflect on what we've heard today. If During this time, as he's leading us to, to stand or to sing or whatever the case may be, if God's moved on your heart and you know today that you need to be saved, I'm going to be seated down here somewhere. Um, make your way to me and let me help you walk through that. 
You don't need me. You don't come through a priest. I'm not a priest. You don't come through me to get to God. There's one way to get to God, and it is through Jesus. But I'd be glad to be a help to you, to just help answer questions or to pray with you. Greg's over here on the seated over here. If you can't get to me over here, Greg, I'm sure, would be glad to talk with you. If you're here today and you know you need to be saved, then there's urgency in that. We invite you today to trust Christ. If you're here today and maybe you're already saved, you know it. Maybe right where you are, you just want to sing with the songs that Ethan's going to lead. Or maybe you just want to kneel where you are or kneel across the front or whatever the case and just thank God for his saving grace in your life. And prayer for his continued strength to deliver you through this test and temptations that come your way. To say yes to him and no to Satan. Whatever it is, maybe you want to join this church. God said to you, you you just sense his leadership that this is the church where he would have you to join. I'd love to receive you, talk through that process. Maybe there's just some of you that you need to get together and pray. Maybe things aren't right in the body. I don't know. Maybe you need to talk things through or get alone with that person and let's be the family. Whatever it is, whatever it is that God says to you, be obedient. Say yes to wherever he leads you. Let's worship our God. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.